Welcome everyone. I'm Kevin Miller and this is The Ziggler Show, inspired by the grandfather of inspiration himself, Zig Ziggler. We've surpassed 40 million downloads because we bring messages that help people make the change they need to get the results that they want. In this episode, leverage your personal story to relate to others. What if you were diagnosed with a small benign brain tumor that you'd had all your life and it had been limiting your cognitive ability? Once removed, you were 10% smarter, let's say. You have a personal story that if you know and understand it well, will help the entire context of your life. Far more than 10% though. You may not have very flashy or seemingly monumental story. But it's your story, and along the way, there have been events that matter and have influenced who and how you are. It is the foundation of your personal context, and yet we give it very little attention in our culture. Well, Zig Ziglar had the tragic deaths of his father and sister as a young boy and had to go to work at a very early age, but he had a solid upbringing and has written his own story in a way where he sees the positives, and he uses his story to find his own place in the world. And he used it very successfully to help others relate to him and vice versa. Well, in this show, I'm going to let you hear, if you haven't before, Zig's story from birth till he got married. This is his formative lifespan. I know you're going to appreciate hearing him, and then you'll have context for how you can clarify, if you haven't, your own story. And I think even if you have, you'll probably get ideas on how to clarify it further and make it more relevant for you. Well, I asked the Ziegler audience this question. Do you feel your personal story is relevant for how you relate to your own life and the lives of others? And then and I had Tom Ziegler join me to talk through your responses and this very necessary ingredient for our success of understanding and leveraging our stories. So we're going to get started right after I share some valuable products and services with you. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to share with you my own story. Now, the reason I share with you my story is because, you see, I just happen to believe that for most of you, my story is your story. With three exceptions, you and I have walked in the same pair of shoes. The first difference would be this for some of you. I have never lost a mate or a child, either through death or divorce. I do not know how it would feel to have suffered that loss. I can say to you, I know how you feel, but the reality is, try as I might, I really cannot know because how could I know the depth of your love and your feeling for your loved one? Second thing that I would like to say that we might differ on is I have had somebody who loved me all of my life. It's true that my dad died when I was five years old. It's true that times were very tough, that six of us were too young to work. It's true that uh, money was short and a lot of other things. But my mother always had plenty of time for loving me and all of my brothers and sisters. My older brothers and sisters also loved me. When I got married, I was so lucky and so grateful that I had a mate who has always loved me. And I can safely say that she loves me more today than she ever has. And I love her more today than I ever have. I have four children. 
I'm safe in saying that each one of them loves me. I'm doubly fortunate in that my three sons-in-law and my daughter-in-law, they also love me. I have just been so blessed in that area. The third area that we might differ on or might not walk the same pair of shoes is this. I've always been healthy. I've never had any emotional problems. I have never had any serious physical problems. And I can say to you, I know how you feel, but the reality is I really cannot. But as far as being discouraged, as far as being uncertain about what tomorrow is going to bring, as far as not having a clue as to what I was going to be doing or how I could handle any number of situations, as far as being broke, I have walked in every pair of shoes in this room today. So in so many ways, our story is the same. I was raised in that little town of Yazoo City, Mississippi. I was raised there during the Depression. We survived after my dad's death. He died on Thursday. My baby sister died the following Tuesday. We had five milk cows and a big garden. I was milking cows before I was eight years old. And I know that some of you here today and some people who will be listening to this recorded series are city slickers. And you don't know a whole lot about cows. So just let me tell you something about cows. They don't give milk. <laughs> now, <clears throat> I don't know what you can, uh, can do with that information, but, uh, but there it is. You use it as you see fit. As a youngster, I worked in the garden and did all the other things that my brothers and sisters did. I was very small for my age. And in those days, uh, you know, we didn't have poor self-images. In uh, those days, it was low self-esteem or more appropriately, inferiority complexes. And one of the manifestations of a poor self-image is uh, that you're impatient, You cannot solve problems. I mean, you got to get on with it. For example, when I disagreed with somebody, if we could not solve it in 10 seconds or less, I would just rear back and bust them one. And I never discriminated. Whether they were bigger or smaller, whether they were black or white or anything in between, I would just bust them one. Now, a Mexican boy broke me of that habit. I have never been as glad in my life to see Miss Street, my third grade teacher, come to the rescue. But in all fairness to me, I got to tell you, I about scared that poor guy half to death. I mean, he thought he'd kill me. Now, I learned a lesson there. As a youngster, I definitely had a very strong inferiority complex. I went to work in a grocery store before I entered the fifth grade on Monday. I was just nine years old. I worked every afternoon after school and all day Saturday. I was a teller in a grocery store. Now, I'm not trying to impress you with the title. That just meant I told people to move while I swept. I mean, I was not in management is, uh, is what I am getting at. In those days, I made 20 cents for working from 3.20 in the afternoon till 7 o'clock at night. I earned 75 cents from working from 7 o'clock in the morning till 11.30 on Friday night. I earned a grand total $1.75 a week working all of those hours. 
I know what it is to need a dollar and want a dollar. But I learned an awful lot of things. For example, my boss was a former school teacher. And when I would drop a grammatical boo-boo uh, right there, he would always correct me. My father died, as said, when I was five. He became a surrogate father. Every Wednesday afternoon, and he had a big farm. He used to take me out to the farm and uh, let me watch him as he talked with the laborers who were farming out there. He showed me by example an awful lot of things. I remember vividly one day when a man came in with some kind of a promotional idea and I sat there, you know, as a 10-year-old listening to it and boy, it sure sounded good to me. Uh, my boss never even considered it. And when the guy left, I said, Mr. Anderson, why didn't you go along with that idea? And he said, well, he said, you know, I don't know a whole lot about what he is talking about. But he said, I learned a long time ago that you can't make a good deal with a bad guy. If his word is not his bond, you better walk away. I found that to be true all of my life, that you can't make a good deal with a bad guy. When I was uh, 12 years old, I added a paper route to my everyday activities. On Tuesday and Friday night, I delivered the Yazoo City, Mississippi Herald. One night a week, I collected for that herald. I was a busy guy. When I entered my 12th grade, I moved next door. The man who'd been running the butcher shop there in Yazoo City at that little Piggly Wiggly store was named Walton Haining, and he wanted me to come next door and uh, work with him in the butcher shop. I worked with him that last year. I got in the uh, Naval Air Corps, and incidentally... There's nothing that's ever happened to me that gave me as much confidence and boosted my image as much as getting in because I got in toward the tail end of the war and very few were making it in. I'd always considered myself below average and yet for some reason I wanted to fly those airplanes so badly that I applied so I could get in. And when I made it, you cannot begin to know what that did to my image. I was report for duty on July the 1st, 1944. The night before I was to leave, Mr. Haining, the owner of that uh, meat market, took me aside and he said, Zig, the war is winding down. I know you'll be back in a couple of years. I'd like for you to work for me when you get back. I said, well, Mr. Haining, I don't think I'd be interested in that. And he said, well, why not? And I said, well, there's just no money in a grocery store. He pulled out his tax returns from the year before. He said, let me show you something, Zig. He said, last year, after all taxes, I earned $5,117 for the year. Now, folks, as we approach the 21st century, that sure doesn't sound like a whole lot of money for a year, but that was $100 a week that he had earned. And let me tell you what you could do in 1944. You could buy three pounds of good bacon for 27 cents. You could buy a 25-pound sack of good flour for 55 cents. I bought a little jacket for 87 cents. I'm here to tell you that $100 a week in 1944 was a ton of money. He said, if you will come back and work for me two years, I'll teach you everything you need to know about running a market. I will help you get your own location in another store. I'll help you get your credit established and you can own your own business. 
man alive, I couldn't wait. The next day, I was so excited I was going to go off to war. I was going to get that thing over with. I was going to come back. I was going to work for Mr. Hain in two years. I was going to get my own market, and I was going to earn me $5,117 in a single year. I was motivated. When I got in the service on July the 1st, on September the 15th, 1944, 9.06 p.m. at the YWCA on State Street in Jackson, Mississippi. I walked in to the YWCA for the first and only time I ever went there. And standing over by the Nickelodeon, how many of you know what a Nickelodeon is? A record player was this prettiest little brown-haired, auburn-haired girl I'd ever seen in my life. Man alive, did I ever fall for her. I went over to her, and with an enormous amount of originality, I said, Hi. (laughs) With equal originality, she responded, Hi. And the courtship was on. Now, I got to confess to you, when I first saw her, you know what I really wanted to do? I wanted to walk over and I wanted to grab her and I wanted to hug her and I wanted to start kissing on her right then. And that's what I wanted to do. I got to tell you. But if I had, I would have skipped too many steps. And I can guarantee you, she would not have been my wife for the last 46 years. Now, I make that point for this reason. In life, There are a lot of steps, folks, and you got to take the steps. That's the reason in this series we diagram a lot of steps that you take. It is not an overnight thing. And if you've been going down one path for many, many years, don't expect to instantly reverse the whole thing. But you one step at a time can do it. You can eat an elephant a bite at a time. You can accomplish some amazing things if we build the right foundation and take the right steps. All right, Tom. Well, everybody just heard about 10 minutes of Zig's initial background story, but that wasn't just a one-time thing for him. Uh, I know it was pretty frequent and I wanted you to share with people why. Yeah. You know, anytime dad spoke to a large audience, um, and he had more than 45 minutes, it seemed like he always told his story. And I actually studied that because I, you know, it's, it's relevant. It, it's a, well, if Zig can, I can too kind of thought process. Uh, but really what happens when people share their story is they begin to identify with you. And when they identify with you, they're more likely to take your advice. But I want to, I want to share the key element in that story. And that is when PC Merrill the man who's spoken to his life that changed his view of himself. When that happened, I think to me, that's like the, the ultimate aspect of the story because the story you tell yourself about your story is actually the most important thing that's out there. The most powerful story in the world is the story you tell yourself. And so when, when people are, they, first off, they discount their story, (laughs) They don't think that what they've done or been through or whatever is unique or different or matters or can add relevance. And that's not true. Everybody's story has power. But even more important than that is the way you see your story mm-hmm. and how you tell yourself about that story. Suddenly, dad went from, uh, you know, this little kid who was never going to do anything to the underdog who could win everything. <laughs> so, I mean, just like overnight and all he had to do was believe in himself yeah 
And that's a powerful, powerful transition. It's a little mind shift, but it's the difference in millions of people knowing of Zig Ziglar or not knowing of him. Well, and I think that the context and, you know, this hit me in really not, not that many years ago, uh, really as a result of people interview asking me to be, to be interviewed on their podcast or their, their whatever. And they ask about the story. And I just realized that I, I tend to, I'm, I'm a, to the point guy primarily. And I was not in the fact that you know, it would come out every once in a while that I was a pro cyclist. That was, that was almost half my life. And I didn't tell people, I didn't have it in my bio. I just kind of, I don't know. I, I burn out with it and just, it's, it was something I, I did, uh, and I didn't really attach it to my self-image today. But my gosh, it's a huge part of my story. It gives me credibility. There's a lot. So it, it brought me, again, to the value of sharing the story or, or, or clarifying my story and then the need to sometimes share it. But we're going to hit on that. I'm going to dive into the questions because people really hit some of, my, some of what I think are the uh, – some of the reasons why we tend not to. So Gregory, he says, yes, he does feel like his, his story is relevant. It's a lens through which we see everything. Empathy allows us to see alternative perspectives, but we still see that alternative perspective through our own lens. Well, I asked him and, and folks, again, this is Facebook. That's where I post these weekly questions. If you want to find me at agent K Miller, um, it's a big part. Obviously these are, these are the shows that we do. And it comes from these conversations. A lot of times I do engage with folks to pull out more. So I asked him, I said, have you ever written your story out? And he says, uh, not fully, but I've shared some of it on my podcast when contextual to the conversation. And then he came back like a day later and said, update Kevin, though not fully written out. My story has been at the forefront of my mind in recent years. And that sounds way more narcissistic than I want it to sound, but I've begun a list of key events, mostly traumas, some triumphs, to simply begin to codify things. Perhaps they'll serve as a rough outline for a memoir. Perhaps they'll serve as topics for a counselor, perhaps both. Bottom line here is that I am making notes. Uh, I love his, his little thought process just as we went through that of, I don't think we often, I think that belies what's the truth is that we just don't consider our stories. Whether, whether or not you talked about that, Tom, whether we think that they have value or not, I am just under the impression that a lot of us just, you know, we're thinking about the next thing and going forward. We don't think too much about our stories, though, I guess on the other side of the people who are so caught up in their past stories, they can't get out of that either. Maybe we, we, we see the far ends of the spectrum and not a lot of healthy balance. Yeah. I'm, I've read a couple of books, actually listened to a couple of books recently from Dr. Carolyn Leaf. Mm-hmm. And boy, she talks a lot about the way the brain works. And when we think about our life and what's happened to us, when we go back to that memory, our brain can't tell the difference between uh, the actual event happening and us recreating the memory. And so it's like you can go back into that memory, into the feelings, everything that's there. But what she points out is that we have the power then to transform that memory until what we want it to be and here's the and this is what i mean by that it's not transforming it into something it wasn't but it's transforming right. it into something that can help us right i was i was doing uh, a coaching session with one of my good friends and he's a type a highly successful great family um, but like all of us there's been things in the past that hurt and i just made the comment i said hey you know, you've buried all of your hurts 
under a pile of victories. Mm-hmm. But the problem with that is, is that because it's going to happen, right? Life happens again. So those things have a tendency of coming back, you know, after a series of events and, and it hurts again. And so the point is, is we want to, we want to look at our story. We want to look at the wins and the losses. He talked about the triumphs and the, and the hurts, the traumas, right? Uh, we want to ask ourselves the question, how did, how can that transform me into the person God created me to be? In other words, what did I learn from it? How did I grow from it? How am I going to handle it next time? And isn't it awesome that, you know, that God can take that and do what he wants with it. Um, and so I think it's, it's, it's when, when we get in touch with our story and ask ourselves that simple question, how can this inform me to become the person God created me to become? That's a, that's a transformative statement. Mm-hmm. And it's within our power. And when we think along those lines, when we do some deep thinking there along those lines, then the next time we recall the story, it's now attached to, you know, what it allows us to do instead of what it keeps us from doing. And those are two different places to be in. And usually the people who've overcome, (laughs) there's a pivotal moment in their, in their life when they look at their past, not as the thing that's holding them down, but as the thing that's allowing them to go to the next level. Tom, and what you're saying, I'll tell you one of my favorite examples is my mom, Joanne Miller. And she wrote a book, Creating a Haven of Peace. And in there, she showcased, is a couple pages in a chapter, or maybe it's a little bit more, but she talked about the value, the, the, the you know, the impact of stories that we talk about. And she writes the story of her childhood, just kind of the highlights of it. And she writes it from the negative perspective and the positive perspective. And she says, both of those stories are true. I mean, they really are. So it's not, yeah, she, I love her perspective. It's not just the sugarcoat things. They're both true. And she talks about, you know, the things that she got by this kind of crazy chaotic childhood and, and, and values that she had got from that, that she wouldn't have otherwise true story. And over here about how hard and devastating it was to go through, but they both exist. And, uh, the, you know, the balance of those, I really like that, uh, perspective and, you know, she also brings out that aspect of what does it make, especially the hard stuff, like Gregory said, the, the traumas, what does that make possible that wouldn't otherwise? What insight, strength, character, whatever do you have as a result of that that you wouldn't have otherwise? Even if you regret that it happened, even if you wish it hadn't, um, it is going to give you value you wouldn't have otherwise. Well, I'm going to keep going because people are bringing out great stuff. Well, Mitch right here, right after Gregory wrote that about when I ask about writing out, Mitch says, uh, Mitch Laser, uh, he says, Kevin, why, why does writing, what does writing it out do? I've never tried it. Life is an extreme roller coaster lately. I don't know how I feel about seeking help. Will this be beneficial? And in what way? Man, and not, not to minimize that at all, but of course we know that, like having goals and the power of just writing them down. I mean, there really is something about getting it on, on paper. I say that now you can type it out, but even from a kinesthetic standpoint, literally pen to paper and writing something out to clarify it instead of it just being a jumbled 
bunch of thoughts and memories in your head. I mean, we know that we know that, I mean, they've done the studies on that, that there really is value. And generally in this scenario, when I've heard of people writing out their story, they generally are surprised at, gosh, if I really go back and think about the memories that I have, the things that stand out, I'm surprised at how much there was, though I have had Tom back when I did a lot of coaching and consulting, I had two guys and specifically, and their struggle was that so little had really happened in their lives. They both had fathers who worked the same job for like 40 years and you know, kind of factory type thing that, uh, there was nothing special happened. They didn't participate in a lot of extracurricular things. They just kind of went through school, uh, got jobs and went on and really not much had happened. And then they were really struggling to say, gosh, I feel like there should be more in life, but it was really hard when so little had transpired in life. That was rare though. I mean, that I rarely come across that most people doing this and I'm interested in what you've seen, Tom, uh, are, are surprised that when they really write down how much happened and it does wake up a lot. Yeah. Everybody's got their own unique story. And I, and I, you know, Michael Mayer, uh, who wrote seven L leadership, he has an example and I'm going to get the words wrong, but the, but it's close. He said, picture your life as a spiral staircase going into heaven. And so what we do is we learn something new. So we call it the life staircase. So we learn something new. So that's the L. We implement it. That's the I. Mm -hmm. Then we F, we fail because nothing is ever perfect. I mean, even if we make a shot in basketball, it could have been a little more dead center than it was. And then we examine. So every time we take a step, we're, we're extending this sterile spare case to heaven, right? This, this idea of, you know, we're moving forward. But the point is, is we, we look at our failures from our perspective of what did we learn? And so, and then we examine it and then we learn something new and we go implement that. And so when we, when we go back into our life and we look at different periods of our life, it's, it's not that uh, everything's a failure, everything's a victory. It's more of if I examine it, what did I learn? And how did that make me become who I am today? And I remember I used to ask dad, I said, dad, you know, would you change anything? Because we all kind of asked that question. And, and, he, and I was, and this was during a hard time. I think uh, maybe my sister had passed away or, or no, it was like an anniversary of something. And we, you know, so we were just kind of talking about those. And I was like, dad, you've had an amazing life. Would you change anything? And he said, no, because I wouldn't want to change who I am today. Yeah. And I think that might be the difference between somebody who takes an honest look at their past through the eyes of grace, right? Which as a believer dad had. And then honestly said, okay, what did I learn? How can I do better? Who do I need to forgive, including myself? <laughs> and then move forward from that. Yeah. Um, and so the danger is, and, and this to me is something that this is one of those things that I wish I could explain it, but I, I just know it, right? It's just in my heart. It's just my, my faith. Uh, when you dig in really deep and you don't have grace there, that could be a lonely place sometimes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so I think that's, that's where I'm careful uh, with people is to say, look, man, there's, there's forgiveness, there's grace. Uh, the people 
around you. Most of them were doing the best they could. And you were based out of where you came from. I'm sure you were trying the best you could. And the good news is if you messed up or they messed up, there's forgiveness. Well, yeah. And that's, gosh, we could have another show on that aspect of, of regret, but it is a relevant ingredient to this topic because right there, what you said, it makes me think of our buddy, uh, John O'Leary who burned the majority of his body. And he was, I don't know if he was asked that or if it was in the book or if I asked him, but somehow somewhere along the line, he was asked, you know, would you, do you, do you wish that hadn't happened? Would you, if you could go back, would you change that? And he said, no, man, that was really hard for me to swallow because he, it was a, a terrifying accident. And I've thought about it for myself, Tom. And I do, man, I get that, you know, especially if you are leading, striving to grow in your life and to redeem those things. So there are, there's wisdom, there's knowledge, there's experience. So much of what I have to offer today is because of the you know, traumas of the past, the things that I did wrong. Um, I got to admit, there's, I'm not without regret uh, for those things. And if I went back, would I make the same mistakes? I can't say that I always would, uh, cause it hurt some people. There were some people that went along my wife would testify to some of those things. And I said, gosh, I wouldn't do that again to you, honey. I wish I, I hadn't, even though we both grew and learned, but you know, that's something for everybody to, to consider. Although it's all banked by what you said, Tom, and that's something that I have and continually, uh, am, am learning is grace for myself amongst that. All right. Well, Hey, again, we're going to hit some other topics here from what people posted. Joe Pellerito. He says, uh, no doubt my story is relevant though. I can miss the mark if I don't focus on their need, the other person's need or story. Okay. I'm going to stick on that because Amber Hendrickson and she is, um, uh, well, she's somebody I know she's a, she has a good story or she has a, an immense story, a meaningful story, but she says, I believe my story is what gives me my unique perspective on the world, but consciously recognizing that allows me to step back and try to understand someone else's perspective after knowing their story. Our own story is special to just us. Uh, but we need to remember that it isn't the only story out there, especially when building relationships with others. Well, back up where. Gregory talked about that and he says, Hey, not to be, you know, not that sounds, sounds narcissistic. I do want to hit on that Tom. Cause I think when we talk about that, that there is a feel can be a feeling of narcissism of our story. And we're not talking about, I mean, you talked about that your dad on stage when there was an, a lot of time would lead with his story. So people had context and that had value. I think we've all probably met people who all they do is live in their story. And if you come within a 10 foot radius of them, you are going to hear their story. Not once, but maybe every time that you're with them. Okay. Granted, that's a far end of the spectrum and, but it can cause people to never share their story. And I have tended to be one of those people. I just, I'm just not going to, I'm not going to be self-focused. I'm going to, you know, pay attention to the other person. But first off, we're talking about initially the value of you knowing your story of me knowing my story just for me. So forget context with other people for context of my own life, the value there. But when we are out there in the public world, is there a place for it? I think absolutely. And it depends. And yeah, I'm not going to do it at a networking event when you're coming up, say, Hey, hi, my name's Kevin. Let me tell you my story. Granted, that's, that wouldn't be it. But my gosh, I mean, has anybody ever been on a date where you were interested in the person and you want to know, you want to know context. Uh, and if I'm doing anything, I'm looking at context. I, that's the number one use I have for Facebook right there 
is look Facebook or any social media, Instagram, Twitter, whatever. When I get asked as I do almost every day about interviewing somebody, if I'm interested, I'm going to go look for context. I'm going to get their bio that they wrote or their agency wrote or their agent wrote, of course, but I also want to go out there and find what news can I find about them? It is contextual. And if you don't have that, I think in today's day and age, if you can't, if people can't find context on you, you're likely to get skipped over. Um, cause I'm going to go look for somebody I can find context on. Uh, my, my son's applying for a job right now. And I told him, give them your Facebook page, give them your social media stuff. They can't ask for it, but they're going to be looking anyway. So just give it to them. You are listening to the Ziegler show. And I bet there's someone, you know, who could benefit from this show. If you would share it with them. Hey, next we address a comment from a psychotherapist who shares the value of knowing her story as a coach and consultant to others. I'll bring you that right after I share some valuable products and services. Here's one, Tom, uh, Amy Van Slambrook, which I love that last name. If I had had that last name, I would have won every bike race. I mean, how can you not with that? <laughs> Kevin Van Slambrook, man, that would have been awesome. Uh, she is a, but she's a psychotherapist, a coach and a consultant. She says, yes, a hundred percent. It's given me my reason to get through the valleys and allowed me to change hearts and lives in ways only my personal journey could. And she has in quote, or in principle by faith and God coming in and taking me out of the depths. Now I'm expanding my story to reach a global audience. And it's so incredibly humbling. I'm honored to share not my story to tell only his capital, his, his through me. I don't know many as that's literally her, her designation, psychotherapist, coach, consultant. I don't know many, at least not many who are good, who are not very well aware of their story. How about you, Tom? Yeah, I'm with you there a hundred percent. Um, for me, like, I'll just give you my example. When I go and speak, uh, and I'm trying to connect with the group, dad always said, everybody's hungry for hope and encouragement. And so when I walk into the room, uh, this is what I imagine. I see family and friends. I see people wanting hope and encouragement. I see people who've, who have shattered dreams, who have an amazing amount of untapped, unleashed potential. And my job is simply to create the atmosphere that brings out the best in them, right? That allows them to become the person God created them to become. Um, and so because, and so then I'll think about it, well, their story is my story. Mm. And dad said that over and over and over again in his recordings, my story is your story, right? Because, you know, it's the, it's the search for meaning. What's our purpose? Why are we here? How do we have value? Do I matter? Um, you know, that is, that is like, like the ultimate theme. And so when you know your own story, and you own it and you realize other people are on the same journey that gives you, I call it the guide, right? It gives you the incredible ability to be the guide. And the reason that people will listen to some people and ignore other people is the people they listen to, they identify with their story and they realize that person sees them for who they are. Yeah. That they're, a, they're, a, you know, uh, you've, you've probably heard of the term, the fellowship of suffering, <laughs> there's something that, that kind of brings people together if they've had a similar form of suffering and that 
that bond or whatever you want to call it. Well, if you're unwilling to open up and share your story, you can never get that bond. And the reason that those, that the people who are willing to be transparent and authentic and, and share the reason they have such an impact is because a lot of people, their, their thought is nobody understands me because there's nobody like me. Yeah. Right. And as soon as they see somebody quote unquote, who's like them, they give them that little bit of an opening to connect. And that's where life change happens when, when we're able to sit and say, wow, you struggle with that too. It's like today at, at, at Ziegler, uh, by the way, to our listeners, if you're ever in Dallas on a, on a Monday morning, 7.30 a.m., we have devotions. It's open to the public. You guys got to stop by. So the devotional speaker today said something like, Hey, you know how when you get up to speak and you think everybody's uh, uh, thinking about you, <laughs> stop kidding yourself. They're not thinking about you. They're thinking about themselves. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I saw a meme like that. They're, they're not looking at you. They're looking at their phones. Uh, That's right. <laughs> yeah. 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 So we all go into a situation that we're uncomfortable thinking, wow, I'm not dressed right. What are people going to say? They probably think I'm weird. And the reality is, is if you could get into the heads of everybody in the room, everybody's kind of thinking that, right? Will I fit in? Are they going to like me? Do I look right? People who own their story and are comfortable and know where they are and can get focused on the other people. And that's like the glue in any, in any group, right? Because yeah. they, they bring that fellowship in. And so it's a, it's a, it's a powerful thing, but until you can get comfortable with your own story, it's hard to get comfortable with other people's stories. And now yeah. when I see somebody do something that doesn't make sense, my question is, what's their story? Yeah. Well, and I think to what you said, yeah, people can't relate to you if they don't know your story to some degree. I mean, think about the people closest in our lives. That's why we are close is because we have context and we can relate to some degree, but I, I appreciate what you said, Tom, that people think their story, people would, that others wouldn't understand it. That's narcissistic. I mean, they can, it, it reminds me, I've, there's so many people that I have known uh, over the years who, you know, have a personal struggle, a, a personal sin, I'll say, and they think it is the most shameful. It is the worst. And then when it comes out, it's just not to minimize it, but to go seriously, you're one of a billion people who struggle with that. And I do too, uh, <laughs> often. And again, I don't mean, I don't mean that to minimize that, but it, it is that I do feel like that is pretty self-focused. I think a lot of people dealing with depression, get to that place to think that they're alone in, in that. Well, you know, on the same note, Sean Langwell, he just simply wrote, of course I do. You have the book. He sent me a book. He wrote a book called beyond recovery. It's an intimate glimpse into the life of an alcoholic. So that is a big part of his platform. And that reality right there that we all have a story is what folks who have listened to the shows and heard Michelle Prince, who often co-hosts with me, uh, that's her platform is we all have a story and it is relevant. It's in your, your story in a book form is the best business card. It's the best place to start. And you can check her out. Shameless promotion here, michelleprince.com. And she just wrote a book just came out called the power of authority, how to get the revenue respect and results you deserve by authoring a book. And that is really her core message right there. Yes. Yeah, some of you have a story that in it in and of itself uh, is of great value 
to you. You may have an experience. It may not be John O'Leary's where you were burned nearly to death, but you may have a story that people can relate to. But even if you can't, boy, Tom, I don't remember. I'm trying to think. There are some nonfiction books, self-help, personal growth books that I have read where the author is just talking about a topic. I do know of some good ones they're, that they're, they're not really sharing from a personal standpoint. They're sharing some wisdom that they have gained. So I do know those. So I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to paint the, the brush completely broad. The majority of them, however, do have personal story and experience in there. And on the far end, I would say somebody like Donald Miller. I mean, that guy came to fame writing in essence, memoirs. And now he writes more on a business standpoint, but it's always from his personal sharing and personal experience. But yeah, I've read people like, gosh, um, like Dan Pink and Malcolm Gladwell, some of these prolific writers, and they're writing on research they've done and some things. It's not really about them. It's what they have found out. So again, I'm not going to say that with everybody, but for the most part, uh, we're going to start off with the context of our story. I mean, you just wrote a, a book, Tom, um, choose to win. And man, I mean, it, it's, it's your, it's your story. I mean, it's your experience. It's so much of it. You know, it's funny. You're, we've mentioned John O'Leary a couple of times. My wife and I were talking about him yesterday and think about this one line that he said, um, he had his accident and he was burned over the majority of his body. He's in the ER. His, his mom knows the situation and I can't remember what they pinned his odds of survival on. Was it like 5%? It was, it was really small. Yeah. And his mom goes in and he, and he's, how old was he? Was he nine years old? Am that I, is my guess. Yeah. So he looks up at his mom, nine years old. His mom knows the situation. He doesn't. And he says, mom, am I going to die? And his mom looks at him and says, do you want to live? Yeah. Yeah. And that basically stopped my heart when I heard that because I'm sitting here, I'm listening to this story and I'm thinking, could I have told my child that thing? Right. Because it's probably the only thing that, that they could say that was a hundred percent truthful that would give the best chance for him living because the doctors are like, if he wants to, he's going to have to want to live as, as much, uh, as his body's and, you know, burned at this point. And then to me, like that's worth, I don't know. That's like that, that the thinking I've done around that one yeah. thing, what if he didn't tell his story, right? What if he'd looked at all these scars as the reason he couldn't? I mean, that to me is just an amazing thing. It's, 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 it's what people have to share. Well, it and, is. And, and just, just like your dad's story that we started off with here, how many kids in a similar scenario as him during that period of time who had a hard way of life and it overcame them? It was the reason that they didn't do anything. And yeah, how many people in John's position, something like that, that, that massive of a tragedy and it did, it overcame them. And he looks at it as it's why he overcomes. Well, you know, again, that's the part of understanding 
and considering again, our story, and I'm going to go back to that, that I think the greatest value is knowing it for yourself. Even if you never share it here, we've been talking about sharing it, but even if you never, ever do, you need to share it with yourself. That's the biggest epiphany I have had in later years. I wish I had been more cognizant of it early on. Um, Barb here, and she, she has a big story. She said, my personal story is the voice, the manner, the passion, and the confidence with which I relate to others. It's my story that makes me human. And it is that humanity, those stories I seek in others. Perhaps my story has made me somewhat intense in the eyes of some people, those who like to keep their relationships on the shallow end. I'm definitely a deep connector when it comes to human relationships. It isn't until I've established a deep story based human connection that I can dip in and out from the deep to shallow waters in my friendships. Uh, somebody's, somebody's a writer here. My story and other people's stories are what create my sense of reality, of realness, of truth. I am more tolerant, more empathetic, kinder, and more open because of my story. Not so much the dramatic events in the story itself, but how I've chosen to view it, how I've interpreted it and narrated it. And she has in, in parentheses differently over the years and how I've turned it into a superpower. My superpower now is to have insight into and control over my own thoughts and feelings and circumstances in my life to the point where the more I share, the stronger. I get, and I hope to help others tap into their own supreme power too. You know, I should have just let off with that. And we could have ended the show. Yeah. I think that's like, I mean, that's like a mic drop right there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what to add to that. That was, that was brilliant. I actually did preview some of these and I did that a little bit. I didn't quite get the depth of that one. And, uh, yeah, I don't know all the details of her story. I know she was in a hard place and had, a, a you know, kind of, kind of came out back out. Maybe I don't know, uh, to connect with her story and from it to connect to others. Well, that, that was a great, you guys might want to rewind and just listen again to what she said. Uh, Laura Golding here, she says, yes. However, it can also prevent me. This is interesting. It can also prevent me from relating to others. For example, my personal experience and story may not be the same as others, but I have had a number of friends or family members that have had very different, different experiences growing older. I realized things that I neither, that I either never noticed before or thought was normal. It is definitely interesting looking at situations from multiple angles or perspectives. It certainly makes me appreciate where I am at now and that I have a husband that helps encourage me to think more critically and with a less naive perspective. I just appreciated Tom hurt to take in kind of a different approach, different perspective, which is her point here on that. Sometimes it can, it can, uh, it makes relating to others hard. And she seems to mention people in her life. And I right away thought about my gosh, I understand that in experiences that I've had with my wife, with our kids, we had our firstborn who went through a lot of medical things. And every time it's retold, every time I hear her tell a story of something that we both experienced with our family, with each other, with the kids and realize how her perspective can be so very different. And I think that can be contentious. And I felt that way sometimes like, seriously, that's what, but then that's the point is she did experience it. It, it. it impacted her. She has her own filter. She has her own life that she came from, that she experienced it from. And so do I. And hopefully together we're a good balance of perspective, especially as a family unit uh, for that. Because there was a time when, I don't, I don't know if that's what Laura's attesting to, where I struggled with her perspective. But that is her 
perspective. And likewise, she struggled with mine where, uh, you know, back then with, with my son, Caleb, who, you know, Tom and, and some of the things that happened and her view, it was so damaging to her and mine. I, I had a different perspective and she felt like I was being nonchalant with it probably good and bad. And you know, it's just, it's relevant. So I, I do understand what Laura is saying there. Yeah. And you know, I, when I think of that, I, our dad wrote in his book, um, I think it's confessions of a grieving Christian. He talked about how when somebody's going through grief, uh, that we never say, Oh, I know how you feel. I mean, yeah. I lost a mom and aunt or whatever. That's not true because every relationship we have with somebody is unique between ourselves and that person. And so once you get to that point of everybody's experience is completely unique because yeah. they're the only ones that's them. That's a powerful, powerful thing. Yeah. And so when you hear that from Terry mm -hmm. and you think, wow, you were really thinking that back then. Mm -hmm. So what does that do? What do you do next? Uh, what I should, what I do or what I should do, Tom, that's two questions. Uh, I'm, I'm hopefully getting better at just trying to dig in and understand her perspective. Uh, whereas I used to, I, there, there have been definitely times of, of contention of, of feeling, um, but I don't know. I don't, I don't, that's a good question. Feeling threatened maybe by her perspective. Um, cause why would I feel contentious? I don't know. Now we're getting into therapy, Tom. Is this a therapy session? Well, I, I ask because I often feel, uh, same thing happens to me. I feel guilty for not recognizing it when it was going I, on. I've done that for sure. Feeling like, gosh, was I just not coherent at the time or what? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and a lot of it's because we're in our own yeah. grief, right? We're, we're dealing with it in our own way. So I love what, you know, just going back to Barb and what she said, the narrator of her own story. Yeah. I mean, the, one of the concepts that's new because of the stuff I've been reading is that we are all neuroplastic surgeons, mm -hmm. meaning our thinking and how we choose to think about things can reform the physical structure of our brain. We can create new thought patterns and tracks. And so we all have the ability to heal our brain or to cause brain damage. Mm. And so one of the things that's, that's real important is, is the, is the, is the story track in our brain, the, the, the way we deal with the things that have happened to us, is it continually leading us to a dead end and a place we don't want to be, or is it propelling us to the next level that's allowing us to grow? And the cool thing yeah. is, is it really is almost irrelevant. The stories that have, that we've lived through, it's how we go back and narrate them and learn from them that determines what our future is. Dad had a quote. He said, our past is important, but it's not nearly as important as how we see our future. Yeah. And I was a product of that without giving enough credibility to the initial statement of our past is important. And, uh, it was in later years where I, I was told by a council, actually the importance of it, it helped to see why I was making some, having some of the same patterns. Uh, and, and you know what, we'll, let's end on that. Here's two people 
who spoke to that. Uh, Katarzyna, she says, my experience, my experiences are the glasses that I see the world through the same experiences shaped my values. I do everything according to my values and include how I relate to and with others. Victoria Warner, she says, absolutely. Our personal story shapes who we are. It is the filter through which all things are seen. God can redeem our tragic stories and give us new perspectives, but even that becomes part of our personal story. Um, yeah, again, granted, we know people that are too caught up in their story. Understood. I think the majority of us, and I'm going to say us as the Ziegler audience, people who are pursuing personal growth, they're pursuing personal responsibility. They're a more aspiring person. They just, they just are, um, that they will probably do well to spend some time clarifying their story telling their story to themselves, being just conscientious of it. Again, aware is my, one of my favorite words that everything starts with awareness. And I say this, and the reason that this matters to me, Tom, is because I've experienced not being aware enough. And now I'm continually realizing the value of being aware of my story for my own context. And then of course, for sharing with others. Yeah. How, how many of us would know, does anybody know of Zig Ziglar without knowing the context of his story for the most part? I mean, that's what he wrote about. That's where he came from. And as everybody heard at the beginning of the show, it's what he often led with. I think, especially if we want to influence others, they need to know our context. Yeah. Yep. I'll never forget. I had a, a meeting with Dan Kennedy who was very, very famous marketer. Mm -hmm. uh, I think he passed away either early, early this year, earlier this year. And he said, Tom, do you know why so many people love your dad? And I said, tell me why. And he said, it's the same reason that women love soap operas. And I thought, what do you mean? And he said, oh, it's real simple. On a soap opera, you know the strengths and weaknesses, the character flaws, the passions, the fears of every character. And so I think what happens is, is when somebody is their authentic, true self and they reveal, Hey, this is a mistake I made. This is the grief that I went through. This is a victory that I had. This is a regret because dad talked about all those things. It's like they're real now so I can love them. Yeah. Right. And when, when, and, and it's funny because I think we give pr people permission to love us after we give ourselves permission to love ourselves. Yeah. And part of that's owning your story. That's, you know, that's interesting. I'm thinking about, you know, even the stories that we tend to hear, we Facebook and social media gets a lot of flack about, we only tell the good stuff, which I mean, granted, I mean, why would we go on? It's like going into somebody back when we had photo albums, you didn't put photos in there of, uh, you know, the toenail you lost, you put the happy moments. I mean, so I don't, I don't discount that, but it's the same thing that we hear even in our world, Tom, of people influence. And we talk about the good stuff and yet to know somebody, which hopefully is going to come out when, you know, when they write a book, when they get a little more in depth, you hear about the real side of their lives and how it impacted them. Well, Hey, this is always such a gift to me. It brings, it brings these things to light for me to know that I need, I will, I will always do well to continue to understand, give value and weight to my story. Tom, I'm grateful to be a part of your story. Thanks brother. All right. Likewise.
So there you have it, folks. What is your story? Do you know it? Do you know its relevance in your life and the value it has in you understanding others' lives? That's the point of this show. If you don't feel that you have clarified your story to yourself, it's a vital missing piece. So here's to you taking even 30 minutes to write out some highlights of your life. We're coming up in episode 739, Become the Drug of Choice. How's that for a title? In any conversation, you can become a constant dopamine hit for the other person. How? Well, by making them the topic, not you. But can you do it? Can you resist the temptation to talk about yourself and express your opinion and getting your own dopamine hit? Second, can you skillfully keep the focus on another person with authenticity? Well, this was a necessary skill for Robin Dreek as a special agent in the FBI. To catch and recruit spies, he became a master in behavioral analysis and applied his expertise in interpersonal communication, relationship building, and trust. These skills are used every day in leadership, sales, human resources, and all aspects of life, both business and personal. And this is what we dig into in this episode from Robin's role with spies right into his home and how it impacts his role as a husband and father. Robin is not just skillful of mind. I asked him about very personal and heart level issues. And I think this is what brought the most valuable issues of our conversation to pass. I mean, issues that are relevant to us all and that we can all apply right away. It's convicting to hear methodologies verified by the, you know, the gravity of life and death. I think you will hear in this conversation, uh, what you hear will make just massive sense to you and you'll find yourself thinking, oh my gosh, of course. And it'll inspire you on taking advantage of these core relational strategies. Uh, so you're going to, you're going to really enjoy this. It was just flat out intriguing. You can connect with Robin at people formula, where he offers training in all that we're about to talk about here. And you can find his book, The Code of Trust, wherever, of course, you get books. Well, till then, folks, thank you, as always, for letting me walk with you as we inspire our true performance together.